A lot of people in this world, and probably many of you out in the audience tonight, are carrying around with you a misconception. It's a misconception that has come to us from a lot of different Eastern religions. Uh, it's the whole idea uh, of light and darkness standing opposed to one another. See, a lot of you think that this world is caught in some kind of epic battle between light and dark. Um, that whole idea of the yin and the yang, or the idea that this world's on a blade of a knife with the light on one side and the dark on the other. If you look at the reality, though, all darkness is, all it is, is a place where light is not present. You don't, you don't ever go into a room and turn on a light and see the darkness push back against that light or repel it. All darkness has the option to do is to flee when a light is turned on. And so we are light, and like light, we have nothing to fear from the darkness. We can't run away from the darkness as if it can invade us, but the Bible says that we are to take the battle to the darkness. We are to go to the darkest places in this world. So may you live in a way that brings the light of Christ to the world around you. May you resist fear of the darkness, and may you walk into this world's darkest places and bring the light of Christ to those who need it most. As we go through our scripture this morning, uh, following through in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, you see how that contrast that he talks about between light and darkness and that we're supposed to be light, how Paul will, will mention that and give us a challenge about being a faithful church as we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians and uh, be, uh, uh, being challenged to be the church and being the faithful church and that uh, we're to have a distinctive lifestyle. And that distinctive lifestyle follows up just logically as he had talked, and we looked at last week about the fact that the faithful church is going to be ready for the return of Jesus. So as we wait uh, and watch and witness, anticipating the return of the Lord at any moment to rapture church and take us out, then what, what's to be uh, distinctive about our lifestyle? So let's back up just a little bit in chapter 5. We looked at a couple of verses there last week. But we'll consider them again because I think there should be no break in here all the way through chapter 5 and verse 11. So Paul writes and says again, Now brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who got drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now, when we look at this section of Scripture, particularly uh, from like verse 5 on through verse 11, uh, we know that it's from the hand of the Apostle Paul. And uh, he is reminding them once again uh, about the, his instructions about the return of the Lord. We know that he had given them some instructions about that. And we looked at that particularly 
uh, in chapter 4. And that's kind of a repeat because he had given that to them when he was there and shared the gospel and established the church. And he talked a little bit about the return of the Lord. And they were confused about that a little bit. So he came back and, and he emphasized that once again. So he's talking to them about and emphasizing the fact that um, he had taught them about the second coming of the Lord. But we don't know how much depth or, or detail. But he says in verse 1, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Because I think they had that understanding uh, that we know today as well. And that is that nobody knows that time except God alone. Not the angels in heaven. And God hasn't chosen to reveal it to even Jesus, his son. So that's uh, unknown to anybody but God. Second thing you'll notice is, again, that he emphasizes the day of the Lord. And we talked about that last week. Now, that's just not one day. But that's a phrase that comes to us, particularly from the Old Testament, that refers to God's interaction in the ordinary, everyday aspect of life with a new revelation. And all of those times, it brings with it a sense of judgment. And so, when he's talking about the day of the Lord coming, he's talking about it's going to be another time that God will intervene and interrupt uh, uh, the normal flow of life when the sun comes back, and that will be a time of judgment. And then the third thing to notice is that Paul points out here an obvious contrast. You notice that he talks about you and them and us and them. And then he talks about the sons of light and the sons of darkness. He's wanting to make a distinction. And that's what leads us to think about this in terms of a distinct lifestyle as a church that's going to be faithful. He's talking about the fact that those who are in darkness and sons of darkness are still uh, in the darkness of sin and unbelief, and Satan has their eyes closed to that. But he says, we, and you, he talks about, second person plural, you, and, and putting himself in that same category. We are the church. We are those who live in the light. We are sons of light. And so his entire concern here in this is that we be the faithful church that has a distinct lifestyle. We're not to be like the sons of darkness, we're to be the sons of light. I think there are three particular things that have a lot of implications for us that Paul talks about should be a part of our distinct lifestyle. And the first one is this. The faithful church has a vibrant faith. We hear the Apostle Paul make that comparison between believers in the church and those who are not believers. There's a difference between daylight and dark. In verses 4 and 5 he says, But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. He notice two things. He's comparing and contrasting light and darkness. And then he's back again to that difference. The separation between us and them and you and them and we. That we are the sons of light and we are here. Now, uh, what does he talk about? Well, he's talking about two different worldviews. That's what he's expressing. See, as believers, we have one worldview. Unbelievers have another worldview. He's talking to our view of world events. Our worldview is what we call it. And so, let's look at the difference between these two. First of all, those who live in darkness. As Paul describes them, and I think as you and I would think about our encounter that we know with people who live in darkness, that Paul says they basically just think everything's okay. They just kind of go through life and they don't know any different aspect about a spiritual dimension of their life. And so, they're just thinking everything's okay. Everything is all right. In fact, he says in verse 3 that they say peace and safety when there is none and there's destruction that's coming. You see, generally, people who live in darkness think that that's all there is to life. That's all there is to life. And they're being lulled into a complacency 
and a spiritual sense of apathy. In verse 7, Paul adds a little bit more to that. He described them as being both asleep and drunk. He said, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And that's how they're living here with the impending urgency of, of the return of the Lord Jesus. They're sleeping or they're drinking. Now, what is he saying uh, about that situation? He's saying that they ought to wake up. They need to pay attention to what's going on. But instead, they are asleep. There are things happening around them that God is doing. But they're totally unaware of that. That's what happens when you're asleep. And then, and then drunkenness on top of that, we know it impairs your judgment. It's the, it impairs your ability to think through things, to make wise decisions, and to act according to reality. You see, drunkenness distorts reality. I think maybe if we were to translate that into uh, all that he's saying into our, our, our vernacular today, it would be, these people are clueless. And that's a shame. I'm not criticizing. I'm not just pointing that out. That basically people outside the kingdom of God are clueless about spiritual matters. They don't understand how God's moving. That's because they can't, because Satan still has their eyes bound. They miss out on God's activity and what God is doing. Now, think about this. Who, what about those who live in the light? How does Paul describe them? Us. That's us. Well, verse 4, he says, But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day would surprise you like a thief. He said there came a point where these Thessalonians heard the gospel. And they had their eyes open spiritually. And they heard what Paul said about the gospel. And they believed in Jesus Christ. And they accepted him. And, and the result was, like, just like for us who have come to know Christ, we moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Our eyes were opened. We became spiritually attuned to what God was doing. And he wanted a relationship with us. And we moved into that relationship. And so Paul is saying because we live as sons of light, and we live in the light, then, then we see God at work. We marvel at what God is doing. The wonderment of God's establishment of His kingdom and the coming of Christ again and our being forever in His presence. So that's what we long for and that's what we live for. In verse 6, Paul describes the position we have as we wait for Jesus to return. He says, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. See, if we're sons of the light as the church, and we're going to be the faithful church, then we need to have our spiritual antennas tuned to what God is doing. We need to be aware of the realities of life and watching for what God is doing, looking for the signs that he talked about. The reality is that the world without Jesus is still in darkness. They're still asleep. But the danger he's talking about here is for believers who lapse into a sense of spiritual apathy, and he calls it sleep as well. Now, what does it mean? What, what is sleep? Well, here's the definition of sleep. It says, a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to the events taking place around you. Now, I don't know whether you're a light sleeper or a heavy sleeper. I'm typically a heavy sleeper. I slept through Hurricane Hugo when it came through. Slept right through it. I listened to the news reports as long as, you know, I could. And I said, you know what? God's in control. It's going to happen. No matter what happens, he's in charge of it. I went to bed. I think Cookie stayed up and listened to the news and watched it. And I thought, nothing you can do about it. I went to sleep, slept through it. The other night when we had the earthquake, everybody else in the house came running down. Did you feel that? Did you feel that? I didn't feel it. See, and that's what, what the definition here of sleep is talking about. 
You know, you're unaware when you're asleep. You're unaware of what's going on around you. Some of you are like that today. You are a son or a daughter of the kingdom of light, but you've allowed spiritual complacency and apathy to slip into your life. Now, probably the most famous sleeper, I thought about could have been Sleeping Beauty, but it didn't fit with the story here. So, uh, is Rip Van Winkle. Remember the story of Rip Van Winkle? Washington Irving story. A short story about uh, Rip Van Winkle. And Rip in the story slips off, get away from his nagging wife. Uh, he's going he's to put her out of her mind by drinking some, and he drinks a little bit too much. And then he decides to take a nap and sleep it off. And when he wakes up, he discovers that he's been asleep for 20 years. His musket, the, the metal part, is all rusty. The wooden part is all rotten. His beard's grown to a foot or longer. And he found out he slept through the American Revolution. Kind of like sleeping through a, a hurricane when it comes, right? See, what happens when you're spiritually asleep is that you're unaware of what God is doing. And that's why we have to have a vibrant faith and to stay awake, stay alert. And the Bible talks to us, and Paul writes about this in two different places with a challenge to wake up in Romans 8, Romans 13, and then Ephesians 5. Paul says, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. See, that's pointing towards that time when Christ is going to come back. He said it gets nearer all the time, and that's when our salvation will be complete. You need to wake up. And then Ephesians 5, he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. And that is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now I'll make an observation. I look around, and I really don't see any eyes closed in sleep unless it's in the choir. Anybody? No. Didn't catch you. They asked me one time, how come you don't turn around and look at the choir more often? I said, I'm afraid I'm going to scare somebody to death or wake them up from sleep. I don't see any eyes closed where you're really actually sleeping. And if you do go to sleep, you know, that's okay. That says you trust me, okay? I'd rather have you awake, but if you need a nap, go ahead. Just don't snore. But the reality is that I look around us in this group that probably... There's some of you who are sitting here with your eyes open, your Bible open maybe even, but you've got spiritual apathy. You're not aware of what God is doing around you. Paul says a, a, a faithful church has a distinct lifestyle. And one of them is that we have a vibrant faith. What does that mean? That means we're awake, we're alert, we're in tune with God, we're sensitive to what He's doing. I'm afraid that a lot of church people, a lot of Christian lives have hung a do not disturb sign outside like at motels and hotels. And those signs are getting more and more fancy all the time. Change the linen, change the towels, yes, no, whatever, and all that. Just put a simple sign in there for me, do not disturb or whatever. That we've hung a do not disturb sign on our life. And we say, I just want to come to church. I just want to feel comfortable. I want to be secure. I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. But I don't want to be disturbed in any other way. Don't challenge me in any other way. And meanwhile, there are people lost in the darkness of sin all around us. And we're not aware of what God's calling us to do. We're not aware of what God wants us to do. We're not aware of the needs of people 
around us. And so Paul says, the distinctive lifestyle of a faithful church is that it has a vibrant faith. It's alive. You know you're in the light and not in the darkness. And you're watching, waiting for God to do things. See, when you've got a do not disturb sign out, it's saying that you're apathetic. You know what apathy is? Maybe you heard about the survey that went around where people were asked the question, uh, what is the number one problem? Is it ignorance or apathy? You know what the number one answer was? I don't know and I don't care. I'm afraid too many of us have spiritual apathy. I don't know. I don't care. I just want what's mine. Now the second thing I think Paul says about a distinctive lifestyle of a faithful church is that the faithful church is prepared for spiritual warfare. Now, if you slept through the first part of this and how you could sleep through that music, I don't know. Uh, Logan County did a great job with the oboe, but I'm confused now. I thought Gabriel came with a trumpet. Now you got him coming with an oboe. Everybody got into the music. So, you know, that's kind of setting the stage. Now, you got to be spiritually alert to be aware of this. And that is that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. That's why Paul says, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Bible scholars, those of you who study Bible will know that it's in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, that Paul talks about that entire spiritual armor that we're supposed to put on. And I think he got that picture when he was under house arrest and maybe even in prison when he was perhaps even chained arm in arm to a Roman soldier. And he looked at the outfit that the Roman soldier had on and he said, wow, this is great. Here's an analogy for the spiritual armor that we need to put on. So there's six of them that he talks about. First there's the belt of truth. Then there's the breastplate of righteousness. Then there's shoes that of, the, of the gospel of peace. Then there's the helmet of salvation. Then there is the shield of faith. And then the sword is the word of God. And he says that's what we need to be fully dressed and prepared for battle. Because we are engaged in a spiritual battle and a spiritual warfare. But for some reason here... In 1 Thessalonians, he only mentions two pieces of that armor, the breastplate and the helmet. And I'm wondering exactly why. Maybe we can unpackage that and see a little bit about why. Of course, the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate on a Roman soldier would protect, protect a chest wound or a heart wound. And then the helmet of salvation, of course, the helmet on a soldier would protect his head in battle. And they did mostly close quarter, hand-to-hand battle with, with sword spears and that kind of stuff like that. So... He's also talking about the fact that the, that shield, the, the, the breastplate is that of righteousness and the helmet is that of salvation. And the breastplate that that Roman soldier would wear had a front and a back piece to it. And so when he's talking about faith and love, it's like, like he's saying faith is on the back and faith has got your back. And that love puts on the breastplate. And remember, it's not our righteousness, but it's the righteousness of Christ that God sees in us because of our faith in him. And then the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is there to protect our head, which is our thought process, our brain, you know, all of that. And what's the application for that? That there is only one way to salvation. We need to remember that. And we need to keep that intact. Because Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now that helmet of salvation protects us from doubt. And see, as I still believe this was a very strong church. 
1 Thessalonians tells us that the church in Thessalonica was a strong church. It was a young church. Paul had a great relationship with them. But the more I look through there, I think that the reason he wrote this letter was not only to encourage them, but also to encourage them because there had been a little bit of doubt that had crept into their thinking. And we see that particularly in chapter 4 when they're wondering, well, what happened to our loved ones who have died and the Lord hasn't come back yet and we're still alive? And what will happen to us if we die before the Lord comes? And see, there was that little bit of doubt in their minds that Paul had to write and, and, and clarify some of those things. So the analogy, I think, is he said, put on the helmet of salvation that will protect your mind, that will protect your thought process, that will protect your brain. And in the process of doing that spiritually, it will keep you from any doubt coming into your mind. So it's like this. If I, if I were to take a, a, a survey of every one of you today and have the opportunity to ask every one of you, do you believe you're saved and you're going to heaven? Some of you would say without a doubt, yes, absolutely. And you can tell me the day, the time, the place, who baptized you and everything about that. And you say, I know I'm going to heaven. And there's spiritual discipline, spiritual fruit in your life that prove you're living that life. I could ask some of the others of you that same question. And you'd say, well, I hope so. I think I am. You see, there's a little bit of doubt that's crept in there. There's that little bit of doubt. You aren't, you aren't affirming that. You know, you're saying, I think so and I hope so. You know, Paul said, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul says, I know that I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And we all need to know the same thing. Are you saved and you know it? You know without a doubt when you die here in this world, you're going to go to heaven and spend eternity with God? Absolutely, you need to know that. Now, why do we need to put on that spiritual armor? It's because we need to be engaged in a warfare, and we are. You are engaged in a warfare. And I want you to notice verse, um, well, I want you to listen to this. And notice here a, a phrase in Ephesians 6, 13, when he's given the full armor to us. Paul says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Have you heard that phrase, stand your ground lately? If you followed uh, uh, the George Zimmerman and the Travion Martin case closely, you know that Zimmerman took the stance about uh, stand your ground. And he was acquitted in that process. There's a terrible tragedy with, uh, with a Dutch Fork student and the defendant is claiming now, I read that week in the paper this week, the stand your ground. Simply it means that you have a right to defend yourself when you're in fear of danger. You have a right to defend yourself. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. 46 states in America have that same law. When we come to spiritual warfare, what that means is you have a right to defend yourself and to stand your ground. That's what Paul says. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Before there was ever a country named America, before it was ever divided into 50 states, before there ever was a law on the books called Stand Your Ground, that God had said it through the writing of Paul so many years ago, that put on your spiritual armor and stand your ground. It's a reminder to us that we are to be prepared for spiritual warfare. And I think, again, if you're a son of light, you ought to be aware of that. So in the darkness, you see, you're not even aware of that. You're a part of the enemy, really. 
And if you've lapsed into spiritual apathy, you're not aware of the battle that's raging. Every now and then I come across um, some of these uh, strange laws that are still on books uh, in certain states. A lot of times we'll be sitting there at night and Cookie's got a laptop and we've got the television on a ball game or whatever. And I'm sitting there either with a Western or I'm, I'm scrolling through Twitter, keeping up with things. And a couple of the strange facts. I don't know whether you watch them, look at, get them on Twitter or not. But a couple of sites that have these strange and interesting facts. And I like that. And I think it was on there one night that something came across about in the state of Texas, there is still a law on the books that says this, that criminals are required by law to give their victims 24 hours notice, either orally or in writing, and to explain the nature of the crime to be committed. Now, do you think that the crooks in Texas are going to let their their Victims know when and where they're going to come and what they're going to do? No, that's a law you might as well get rid of because it ain't working. You know, when we built the, the Platt building down here, the education building, the Platt building, and we put in the uh, video surveillance, you know, by law what we were required to do? Put a sign up that says video surveillance, you know, to warn the thief. This law says they're supposed to warn us. We're warning them. You come in, you're going to be videoed. Now, I make that analogy because Satan does not give us an advance warning. You've got to be prepared for spiritual warfare whenever Satan decides to attack. He's not going to give you a warning. In fact, Dr. Howard Hendricks, a longtime professor, I think at Dallas Theological Seminary, that said, Satan will lie in the weeds for 40 years to entrap one of God's servants. And we see it happening all the time. We see Christian leaders fall to different temptations. We see pastors fall to different temptations. And and it's because they weren't prepared for spiritual battle. They weren't ready for the spiritual battle that was coming. Satan found a weak spot and they they weren't dressed in their armor. And Satan found the weak spot and they were attacked. When President Bush launched his his. Uh, war on terrorism. There was all speculation about what it, would it be called. And boy, that put, the, that put the wordsmiths in Washington to work. And they began to trace all these kinds of things with the war. And they went back to World War II and they discovered that President Roosevelt agonized over what he would call that war. He wanted to call it the war for survival. But what actually the advisors told him to do was just simply call it World War II. But I think that we need to take up that motto about that, that this is a war for survival that we're in, this spiritual battle that we're fighting. There are enemies rising up left and right against the kingdom of God. There are enemies that are attacking your life. And you need to be prepared for spiritual battle by putting on the spiritual armor. Paul says, "A, a faithful church has a vibrant faith and is prepared for spiritual warfare. And then there's a third thing that he talks about, and it's this. He says, the faithful church builds up the body of Christ with encouragement. Verse 11, he says, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. In other words, he's saying, you're doing it. Do it. Keep on doing it. Maybe even do a better job of it, encouraging one another. You got to think about that. Where should be the ultimate place in life that you hear words of encouragement? It should be in church. We're people of God. We're sons and daughters of of the kingdom of light and not darkness. We've got hope to offer. We've got love to offer. 
And sometimes it's the place where you can hear the most discouraging words. But Paul says, if you're going to be a faithful church, you've got to encourage one another. So the words we speak to people can either lift them up, build them up, or tear them down. James, practical book, I think, most practical of all in the New Testament, says that with our tongue we can either be a refreshing fountain or a deadly fire. I don't know how many times in my life, and maybe you as well, You've said something on the spur of the moment or the heat of anger or whatever, and as soon as you get those words out, you wish you had never spoken them, right? And when I hear that, I'm reminded about uh, an old proverb that says, he that thinks by the inch and speaks by the yard deserves to be kicked by the foot. <laughs> I think Paul's saying to us, we should only use words that build people in Ephesians 4.29, he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We need to encourage one another. So as you sit here today and you look around you, you really do not know what's going on with people around you. They might be here, they might have a smile on their face, but you don't know the battle that they're going through. You don't know the struggle that's theirs. You don't know maybe the pain that's in their life. And a word of encouragement goes a long way. We might not have the answer. Most times we don't. But just to let them know that we care and that we encourage them. It's like giving somebody a pat on the back. Let's look at that on the screen. Give somebody a pat on the back. What does that mean? Well, we can break it down into three words. I'll spell out pat. First of all, praise. You need to praise them. You know, you're looking good today. You're sounding good. I hope things are going well with you. You know, I've watched you through the years, and you've been a source of encouragement to me. You know, like praising somebody for what they've done, how they've done it. Then A would be for affirmation. Everybody needs affirmation. When I take uh, couples through preparation for marriage, I have them to watch uh, the uh, video series and go through the study book on the five love languages. And then they have to determine what their love languages are and what the love language of the spouse to be is, and they've got to learn how to speak that love language. Words of affirmation is one of those five love languages because we all need that. We need to hear you're doing a good job. You're doing a great job managing the finances in the family. You're doing a great job managing our household. You're doing a great job taking care of the children. You tell your kids you're doing a great job at school. You did a great job on cleaning up your room or whatever and all it might be. There needs to be those words of affirmation. And then the T would stand for thanks. You ever say to anybody, I thank God for you? I thank God for you. I thank God that he put you in my life. You mean a lot to me. And I thank God every day that he put you in my life. Well, that would be an encouragement, wouldn't it? You give somebody a pat on the back to praise them and and to to, uh, uh, give them words of affirmation and then to thank them. To thank them for what they've done and what they've meant for you in your life. You see, we all need that. We all need encouragement. We all need a pat on the back. And Paul says, you're doing it. Don't stop doing it. Keep on doing it. Now, there's this characteristics that I think Paul defines of a faithful church that's going to have a distinct lifestyle. It's going to have a vibrant faith. We aren't sleeping. We're not going to be caught drunk. We're not going to be caught sleeping. We're going to be alert and awake and seeing what God's doing. And that means, secondly, we're going to be prepared for spiritual battle. We're going to arm ourselves with the armor. And then, thirdly, we're going to encourage one another encourage one another. You see how all three of those go together? You got that vibrant faith and you're going to be prepared for for spiritual warfare and then you're going to encourage one another because they're going through the same thing too. And my prayer is that we would be a faithful church like this church and that we would be distinct in our lifestyle and known for that distinctiveness. That would go a long way 
for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your word that continues to speak to us. Uh, thank you for the challenge you give us here in the writing that we find by the Apostle Paul about uh, a faithful church and how we should be distinct in our lifestyle and the things that we need to do. Uh, and I pray, Father, that we will take that to heart. If there's any apathy in anyone's life who's a believer, that they will wake from that apathy and they will want to be alert to what you're doing and be on page with you and be on mission with you, most importantly. We'll look for ways in which we can, can encourage one another, be faithful about that, and that we'll look to you for the source of strength as we engage the enemy in spiritual warfare. Father, may we be able to do all of this as we commit ourselves totally, completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that I pray. Amen.